Ibn Arabi, as most of you know, has commonly been called a Sheikh al-Akbar, the greatest teacher. The main reason for this is that he explained in unprecedented detail and at the highest level of discourse all the implications of the Islamic worldview. The result was a vast synthesis of learning covering all the basic fields of investigation, including Quran, Hadith, language, law, psychology, cosmology, theology, philosophy, and metaphysics. In delving into these fields, he wanted to show how each is built on the governing axiom of all true knowledge, and how each can act as an aid in the actualization of true human nature. But what exactly is true human nature? This is what I'm calling anthropology. The explication of the nature of the anthropos. It is this explication that lies at the heart of Ibn Arabi's writings. To get at his vision of the real nature of the human self, however, we need to begin where he begins. And that is with the governing axiom of the Islamic worldview. This axiom is tawhid, in one word, the assertion of unity. So we need to begin with this foundational principle. What exactly does tawhid mean? Literally. The Arabic word means to say one or to assert one. Technically, its first meaning is to utter the formula, there is no God but God. Discussions of Tawheed focus on how to turn this verbal statement into true understanding and eventually into the absolute bedrock of all knowledge. Parenthetically, I should remark that those who translate the formula of Tawheed as there is no God but Allah are demonstrating theological obtuseness at its worst. Such a translation reduces a profoundly metaphysical statement into an exclusivist claim to superiority. In Arabic, the formula of Tawheed is composed of four words, no God, but God. People add there is at the beginning of the English translation because of English grammar. In Arabic, the copula is understood. Now, one way to bring out the implications of Tawheed is to place any Quranic name of God into the formula. For example, God is creator. It follows that there is no creator but God. God is knowing. It follows that there is none knowing but God. God is compassionate. It follows that there is none compassionate but God. Now, in short, Tawheed is the assertion that all real qualities belong exclusively to the ultimate reality. And that simultaneously, all qualities of created things are essentially unreal. 
When we talk about ourselves or others, using words like creativity, knowledge, and compassion, our words are more like metaphors than actual statements of the real situation. In our case, these divine attributes do not designate what they seem to designate. Rather, our own qualities are pale reflections or imitations of the true reality. In actual fact, this is something that Ibn Arabi is constantly restating, there is no reality but the absolute reality of the real. Now this is the fundamental insight of Tawheed. Working out the implications of this insight has been the preoccupation of all schools of Islamic thought, not least theology, philosophy, and Sufism. No one has been as thorough in accomplishing this task as Ibn Arabi. I chose Anthropology of Compassion as the title of my talk because I wanted to think about how Ibn Arabi himself might have approached the theme of the conference. Given his constant stress on Tawheed, his first order of concern would be to show why God is essentially compassionate, perhaps even more so than he is anything else, and why compassion should be our own concern, perhaps even more so than anything else. Now, we need to begin by saying something about the words that Ibn Arabi uses to talk about compassion. First, as a divine attribute, Second, as a human attribute. It is not necessarily clear how we should translate the English word back into Arabic. Webster's third gives compassion a relatively straightforward definition. I quote, deep feeling for an understanding of misery or suffering and the concomitant desire to promote its alleviation. Now, anyone familiar with Islamic theological thinking knows that something like this is central to the Muslim understanding of God. Among the divine names in the Quran, and it's through the divine names that Muslims meditate upon the nature of God, uh, several of the names have meanings that overlap with this definition of compassion. And each of these names is explained in detail in Islamic texts. Ibn Arabi himself often takes pains to distinguish among the meanings of God's most beautiful names, as the Quran calls them. And among other things, he devotes one of the longest chapters of his monumental Meccan openings to this task. Now, it's fairly clear that the best choice among the attributes, the Arabic words, to, end our, to render our notion of compassion is rahmah. I usually translate this word as mercy rather than compassion because mercy seems to have a broader range of appropriate connotations. Webster's tells us that mercy means, I quote, compassion or forbearance shown to an offender or subject, clemency or kindness extended to someone instead of strictness or severity. So, Compassion and mercy are near synonyms in English, but mercy has a clear connotation of implying a choice between 
a, a choice of kindness rather than severity, a choice of clemency rather than strictness. The word works nicely to render what I consider the most important theological principle in Ibn Arabi's writings after Tawheed itself. This principle is expressed by the Prophet in his famous saying, God's mercy takes precedence over his wrath. Any careful reading of the Quran will show that the theme of mercy's precedence and priority uh, is absolutely suffuses the text. Once we take Tawheed into account, we can see that this precedence of Rahmah, mercy and compassion, is more than a mere choice on God's part. We have to choose. But God doesn't choose. In human terms, we can choose to be kind rather than severe. We can try to be clement rather than strict. In a very profound sense, however, God has no choice because mercy pertains to the very stuff of reality. God cannot give priority to wrath over mercy, to severity over gentleness, because that would be to give priority to unreality over reality, to non-existence over existence. It would contradict the foundational truth upon which the universe is built, the fact that there is no reality but God, and that there is no true existence but God's existence. Wrath, severity, strictness have feeble supports in the nature of things, even though these supports are real enough in relation to us, because we ourselves are rather feeble. In the grand picture, wrath and severity are unreal and have no sway with God. This is a recurrent theme in Ibn Arabi's writings. He sees it expressed clearly by the Quranic verse in which God says, My mercy embraces everything. And he reminds us that the Quran never says anything remotely similar about wrath or severity or vengeance. He tells us over and over that all things will find their final resting places with Rahmah. Because mercy and compassion are real and all else is unreal. In a typical passage, for example, he writes as follows, I quote, The final issue will be at mercy, for the actual situation inscribes a circle. The end of the circle curves back to its beginning and joins with it. The end has the property of the beginning and that is nothing but being. Mercy takes precedence over wrath, because the beginning was through mercy. Wrath is an accident, and accidents disappear. Now, notice that in this passage, Ibn Arabi uses the word being, a translation of Arabic, wujud, as a synonym for mercy. From the time of Avicenna, who died 115 years before Ibn Arabi's birth, the standard way to designate the stuff of reality was to use this word wujud, which is normally translated as existence or being. By Ibn Arabi's time, the word was used not only by philosophers 
but also by many theologians and Sufis. Often, it can be adequately, adequately translated as being or existence. But Ibn Arabi brings out nuances of this word that philosophers and the theologians usually ignored. Now, as soon as we think about the notion of wujud being existence, in terms of tawheed, we see that there is no wujud but God's wujud. No true being, but the being of the real. Al-Ghazali, the famous theologian and Sufi, who flourished in the period between Avicenna and Ibn Arabi, often speaks of wujud in terms of tawheed. He commonly uses the formula, laysa fil wujud illallah. There is nothing in existence but God. He means to say that God alone truly exists and that everything else is like a passing cloud. In Ibn Arabi's works, however, it is not enough to think of wujud as signifying existence or being. In everyday Arabic and in the Quran itself, the word means to find. The philosophers took the passive sense to be found as a designation for the Greek notion of existence. The logic of this choice is fairly clear. What exists is either that which is found or that which might be found if we had the right perceptual faculties. Now in contrast to the philosophers, the theologians paid attention to the meaning of the word in the Quran. God is often the subject of the verb to find. So the theologians included the name al-wajid, the finder, in their discussions of God's most beautiful names. Al-Ghazali again tells us that the finder designates God as he who finds everything and lacks nothing. The Sufis used the word in this sense, the sense of finding, long before they ever used it to mean existence. For them, wujud is a divine attribute that designates finding awareness, and consciousness. Now, as for Ibn Arabi, he made use of all previous scholarship on Islamic principles and practices. In his vocabulary, wujud means either existence or consciousness, or both at once. As far as he was concerned, what exists is found. And it also finds, even if we do not ourselves understand how it is able to find. Now, as for what does not exist, it is not found, nor does it find. In other words, the one word wujud designates both being and consciousness. If we ourselves differentiate between existence and consciousness, this is because of our lack of insight, not because of the actual situation. Now, by Ibn Arabi's time, the philosophers and theologians often discussed God as the necessary wujud, the being that must be and cannot not be. Avicenna depends a, uh, spends a tremendous amount of time proving this. Ibn Arabi sometimes uses the same terminology, but he stresses a side of the discussion that earlier thinkers often forgot. 
God, he says, is the real wujud. And everything other than God has an ambiguous status. To say this is to say that there is no true being but God, and also that there is no true consciousness but God. Any other being and any other consciousness is neither real, real being nor real consciousness. Rather, it is a shadow of wujud or its reflection, like an image in a mirror. In the last analysis, analysis, being and consciousness do not belong to anything other than God, who is the necessary being and the necessary consciousness. Rather, being and consciousness, like all other positive attributes, are loans from God. In other words, in order for these qualities to subsist in anything other than God, they must be constantly replenished by God's bestowal. So, in other words, briefly, God is essentially real. He is real by his very essence, such that he cannot be unreal in any respect. In contrast, things, creatures, peoples, people, everything other than God are essentially unreal because they have no being or consciousness in their own essences. Any being in consciousness that things seem to have is in fact the ongoing bestowal of real wujud. Now let me make a slight detour here and remind you that for the past three or four centuries, Muslim and Western scholars who have talked about Ibn Arabi have usually claimed that his main teaching is wahdatul wujud, the oneness of being or the unity of existence. Now typically, and there are exceptions, typically those who have said this have misrepresented what he was actually saying. The fact is that he himself never used the expression. And the first person who claimed that Ibn Arabi himself believed in the oneness of being was the polemicist Ibn Taymiyyah, who lived a hundred years after him. He said this in order to accuse Ibn Arabi of being a, a heretic and an unbeliever, or what we might call a pantheist. Ibn Taymiyyah's attack on the notion of wahdatul wujud turned an inconspicuous expression, hardly used by any previous thinker, into a controversial term that is still argued about today. Both sides of the argument have accepted unthinkingly and without examining Ibn Arabi's writings that he did believe in the oneness of being in wahdatul wujud. Each side, however, defines the expression in its own way. So in fact, the deaf have been talking to the deaf. So please, do not repeat the statement that Ibn Arabi believed in the oneness of being or the unity of existence unless you are able to define the expression in a way that is in keeping with Ibn Arabi's actual teachings. Now, the fact is not many people can do that because not many people are familiar with his writings. Nonetheless, you are on completely safe ground if you say that Ibn Arabi based his teachings on Tawheed and that he also talked a great deal about the fact that real being belongs to God alone. In other words, there is no true being but God's being, 
just as there is no true life but God's life, no true knowledge but God's knowledge, no true compassion but God's compassion. This brings us back to Rahma, mercy, or compassion. The Quran uses the word frequently, and it derives four divine names from the same root. The most prominent of these names are Rahman and Rahim. Grammatically, these two names mean exactly the same thing. But theologians differentiate it among the two on the basis of Quran of the usage of the two names in the Quran. We can translate the two as the all-merciful and the all-compassionate and thereby suggest something of their differing connotations. The names, of course, are part of the formula of consecration that begins almost every chapter of the Quran in the name of God, the all-merciful, the all-compassionate. Now, when theologians wrote books explaining the meanings of God's most beautiful names, they would typically explain the all-merciful and the all-compassionate immediately after the name God itself. The Quran provides, and then, of course, there are 98 or 97 more names to explain. The Quran provides good evidence for suggesting that Rahma is in fact synonymous with the divinity itself or the Godhead. For example, take the verse, call upon God or call upon the All-Merciful. Whichever you call upon, to him belong the most beautiful names. If a distinction can be drawn between the name God and the name Rahman, the All-Merciful, it is that the All-Merciful demands by its very meaning, attention to others. This is not the case, however, with the name God. That is not until we specify exactly what we mean by the word by citing other divine names that are included in the meaning of the word God, such as creator. Now, one way to get a sense of the meaning of the Arabic word Rahma is to look at its derivation, as Ibn Arabi and others often do. Rahma, mercy, compassion, is an abstract noun designating the qualities and characteristics of a concrete noun. The concrete noun is Rahim, which means womb. Rahma signifies all the traits associated with the womb and the mother. The mother never ceases being her children's womb. And the specific sort of love that she has for the fruit of her womb is analogous to the mercy that the All-Merciful has for his creation. The Prophet himself makes the point. According to him, this is a famous saying, God divided mercy into 100 parts. And in creating the universe, he kept 99 parts for himself, and he gave one part to the universe. Through that one part, mothers take care of their children and wild animals. 
guard their young. After the resurrection, God will reunite that one part with the 99 parts. Ibn Arabi often talks about this hadith. Let me just quote you one passage in which he explains something of its implications. I quote, Once the day of resurrection has come, and once God's judgment, decree, and determination, by means of this one mercy, have penetrated the whole universe, and once the calling to account has been completed, and the people have taken up their dwelling places in the two abodes, paradise and hell, then God will add this one mercy to the 99 mercies, so there will be 100. He will send down mercy unconditionally upon his creatures in the two abodes, so it will pervade and embrace everything. Now one might conclude from the various discussions of Rahmah in Islamic texts that it designates God's love for creation. And this is true enough. However, we need to keep in mind that the Quran and Muslim thinkers draw a clear distinction between Rahmah and Hub or Muhabba. That is between mercy and love. This is because mercy is unidirectional. Mercy comes from God to human beings, not the other way around. People can be merciful and compassionate to each other, but they cannot be merciful to God. Now, as for love, it is bidirectional. The Quran says, I quote, He loves them, God loves people, and they love Him. Now, this verse, which affirms the mutual love of God and man, lies at the heart of the tremendous stress that is found in Sufism generally, as for example in Rumi. Now the reason that Sufism gives love a special rank should be fairly obvious. The goal of lovers is to become one. God loves man and man loves God. God created the universe out of love for human beings. God is man's lover and as man's lover he wanted man to love him in return. Hence God sends messages of love through the prophets. Shamsi Tabrizi, Rumi's famous teacher, said that the Quran is a love letter from God. For those of you who know Persian. On the human side, we can only achieve fulfillment in our lives when we recognize that the only thing that we truly love is God. Because God alone is truly real. As Aristotle affirmed already, and as the Muslim philosophers insisted, all creatures are in fact in love with God, whether they know it or not, because he alone designates what they truly desire. Now, Tawheed expresses the point succinctly with the formula, there is no beloved but God. Moreover, God loves human beings, so he is the lover. That means that there is no lover but God. In the last analysis, human love for God and for anything else is God's love for himself. We, however, will never reach union with our true beloved 
until we wake up to our true nature. Now, reaching union, that is reestablishing the primordial unity that was the situation before God created the universe, is the ultimate goal of the two lovers, God and man. On the human side, union is achieved by the actualization of Tawhid. Despite the fact that most Muslim theologians, in contrast to the Sufis, had an abhorrence of the notion of union, it is strongly supported by the Quran and the Prophet. And I could quotes, make some quotes, but I should move on because my time is limited. Now, the Quran's constant mention of God's mercy and compassion makes it clear that Rahmah designates the very reality of God as it relates to us. Ibn Arabi develops the logical implications of this Quranic language. God's mercy, the Quran tells us, embraces everything. It follows, says Ibn Arabi, I quote, the universe is identical with mercy, nothing else. Mercy, he says, is in fact the name in the Quran for what the philosophers decided to call wujud. The abode of mercy, I'm quoting, the abode of mercy is the abode of wujud. Now, if mercy embraces everything, it is because all things, whether or not they exist at any given time, are known to the divine consciousness, the divine finding, the divine wujud, which is the abode of mercy. And if things are found in the world, when they do exist, it is because the divine mercy has bestowed existence upon them and is nurturing and sustaining them. Without the motherly attributes of mercy, creation would be destroyed by wrath and severity. Now to drive home the utter centrality of mercy and compassion to all of existence, or rather to demonstrate that our existence is nothing but the divine mercy, Ibn Arabi has recourse to the recurring theme in the Quran that God created the universe by speaking. Genesis, we know, says that God created the world by fiat lux, let there be light. The Quran says that God created the universe by saying be, kun. The Quran also says that if all the oceans were ink and all the trees were pens, the words of God would not be exhausted. In referring to this verse, Ibn Arabi says, quote, all the entities of the existent things are the words of the real, and they do not become exhausted. Or again, quote, God's words are nothing other than the forms of the possible things, that is, the things that exist. And these are infinite. Now, the relationship between the divine words and God himself can be understood on the analogy of the relationship of our words to our breath. God's creation, says Ibn Arabi, can be rightly called the breath of the all-merciful, because the all-merciful designates the Godhead as overflowing goodness, manifestation, and creativity. Breath is the stuff of speech. So God's spoken words take form in his breath, just as we articulate our words in our breath. My words in this talk are nothing but my breath, and my breath is nothing but me. Without 
breath. I am not me. A corpse. Without the all-merciful breath, there would be no divine words, no creatures. The universe is simply the divine breath, or rather, the sum total of the words articulated by the all-merciful. Now, mercy, it was said, is the Quranic designation, according to Ibn Arabi, for wujud, which means being and consciousness. The all-merciful is God as infinite being and consciousness that gives of itself to all things. He gives them himself by speaking, by uttering the creatures, by articulating all things within himself, that is in the realm of being and consciousness. It is this articulation that individuates the things and give them, gives them, in the human case, the being through which they know and become conscious of the world, themselves, and God. When we speak, our words immediately dissipate and disappear. They never achieve independent reality. As for God's word, be, which Ibn Arabi calls the word of the presence, the divine presence, it is eternal, which is to say that it is always and forever uttered by God. It is the creative logos that articulates all words, all worlds, all beings. In contrast to the word of the divine presence, however, the individual words, that is, everything, constantly perish, just as our spoken words perish. If we do not perceive, our, if we do not perceive ourselves as perishing, that's because God does not cease uttering our names. If we could see clearly, we would understand that each moment of our existence is a new utterance. Even if from God's point of view, there's only the word be. This, of course, is Ibn Arabi's famous doctrine of the renewal of creation at each instant. Now, in this grand picture, the divine mercy infuses everything that exists. Is there anything that makes human beings special? The answer is yes, everything. First, whose picture is it? The picture is offered by a human being in human language for the benefit of human understanding. The Quran itself was revealed in human language for human beings and provides numerous verses highlighting the unique status of human beings. The Islamic anthropology that Ibn Arabi unpacks with unprecedented detail and profundity can be summed up in these terms. The all-merciful created man so that man might participate to the fullest possible measure in mercy, compassion, love, blessing, benefit, and everything good and beautiful. The all-merciful could not simply create man as full participants in mercy because full participation means consciousness and awareness not only of the good but also of the evil of not having the good this consciousness and awareness is wujud, being in existence. It is not simply book learning, of course, but actualization of the full implications of the divine names that were infused into Adam when God created him and taught him all the names. In order for this to come about, Adam, we had to forget. We had to leave the immediate 
divine presence and come to recognize the disclosure of God's being in consciousness through the articulation of the all-merciful throughout the entire cosmos. Oh, angels, in contrast to man, were created as conscious participants in the divine mercy. But precisely because they cannot forget God, they can neither depart from him nor approach any nearer to him. They can neither expand nor contract. They are, as the Quran puts it, and Ibn Arabi explains in detail, fixed in their stations. In contrast, human beings were not created in fixed stations. God created them in his own form, which embraces all the divine names, every possible designation of wujud in itself, every possible articulation of the all-merciful breath. God is free from all outside constraint. When he created man in his own form, he created him with the freedom to deny him. In other words, people are free to choose between the beautiful and the ugly, the merciful and the wrathful, the right and the wrong, the true beloved and the illusions of love. If they make the right choices, they can rise up in station and ascend toward an ever-increasing participation in goodness, beauty, and mercy. If they make the wrong choices, they will become more constricted and confined in their stations, and they will descend by virtue, virtue of their own freedom to act, away from mercy and compassion. In brief, Ibn Arabi's anthropology teaches us that human beings were created with the potential to know the all-merciful in the totality of his manifestation, and that they are called upon to actualize this potential in order to achieve their true humanity. Now, one of the many ways in which Ibn Arabi and others discuss this quest to rise up in station and to ascend back to the all-merciful is to employ the language of ethics, or rather character traits, akhlaq. They, Ibn Arabi and others tell us that the goal of all the prophetic teachers, teachings is to guide human beings in the path of becoming characterized by the character traits of God. Ibn Arabi says it is precisely this focus on achieving transformation that differentiates the path of the Sufis from that of other Muslim teachers. In his words, Ibn Arabi, becoming characterized by the character traits of God. That is Sufism. He also has a great deal to say about the example set by the Prophet Muhammad in actualizing the divine character traits. It is no accident he frequently tells us that God says to Muhammad in the Quran, we sent you, Muhammad, as a rahmah, a mercy and compassion to all the worlds. Rahmah, mercy and compassion, is precisely the designation for the global human perfection that is actualized when man becomes characterized by the divine character traits. Ibn Arabi devotes a good deal of his writing to explain the manner in which human beings should go about actualizing the divine character traits. He does so in terms of the priorities demanded by wujud itself, the mercy that is the source of all. 
This is why he typically unpacks the implications of the foundational axiom of thought, tohit, by working out the meaning of the first corollary of tohit, and that is prophecy. Most of his books are structured around the notion of the multiplicity of the prophets who made manifest each in his own specific way the unity of mercy. Naturally, he pays special attention to the final prophet. Uh, and the instructions that Muhammad provided for traveling on the path to God. Now, one of the many ways in which Ibn Arabi brings out the importance of the prophet's example is by paying close attention to the ritual instructions provided by the Quran. Uh, for example, in the longest chapter in the Meccan openings, which is the chapter on prayer, the five daily prayers, which is that chapter alone is twice as long as Ibn Arabi's most famous book, Fusus al-Hikam. The longest chapter in that book is devoted to explaining the meaning of the daily prayer. One section of this chapter is devoted to a, a prayer that the prophet used to recite, a supplication, after the formal beginning of the prayer and before the recitation of the first chapter of the Quran. The supplication includes these two sentences. Guide me to the most... You're addressing God here. Guide me to the most beautiful character traits. No one guides to the most beautiful ones but you. Divert me from the ugly character traits. No one diverts from the ugly character traits but you. Notice that this uh, includes the typical stress on Tawheed. Uh, the Quran calls God the guide, and Tawheed teaches that there is no guide but God. The, so the supplication is saying that beautiful character traits merciful and compassionate character traits cannot be achieved without divine guidance because there is no guide but God. The first corollary, prophecy, however, reminds us that the prophets are precisely the guides whom God appointed for the human race. Now, this little supplication, which Ibn Arabi says he recited in every prayer, summarizes the notion of Tazkiyat to nafs the purification of the soul, which is often taken as a synonym for Sufi practice. The reason people are called upon to purify their souls is so that they can get rid of their ugly character traits and become characterized by the character traits of God. Without becoming godlike, in other words, it is impossible to actualize in oneself the implications of the anthropology of compassion. I have a quotation from the Futuhat, which I wanted to read at the end. I think I still have three minutes. Let me just uh, go through this quickly. Uh, this is from the chapter on the breath of the all-merciful, which is one of the longest chapters again. Not as long as the one on prayer, but quite long. In which Ibn Arabi unpacks the symbolism of breath, and specifically in terms of the letters. You have 28 letters in the Arabic alphabet, and in this, uh, in each letter of the alphabet designates one level, one descending level, and then ascending level of the all-merciful in his manifestation. The last of the letters, the 28th letters, 
is the perfect human being, not ordinary human beings, but perfect human beings. So let me just read this from that chapter. In the same way, man is the final goal of the breath, the all-merciful breath, and of the divine words that designate the kinds of things. For within man is the capacity of every existent thing in the cosmos, since he possesses all of the levels. This is why he alone was singled out to be created in the divine form. Thereby, through his creation, he brings together the divine realities, which are the divine names, and the realities of the entire cosmos. For he is the last existent thing. The all-merciful breath did not bring man into existence without placing within him the capacity of all the levels of the cosmos. Through him becomes manifest that which does not become manifest in any of the parts of the cosmos nor in any of the divine names. For in respect of each name's distinctiveness, it does not bestow what any other name bestows. Hence, man is the most perfect existent thing. Everything other than man is a creation. But man is both a creation and the real. In reality, perfect man is the real through whom creation takes place. The reason we say perfect is that the name man may be applied to those similar to him in form. You may say that Zaid is a man and Amr is a man, even though the divine realities have become manifest in Zaid, but they have not become manifest in Amr. In the same way, a ball resembles a celestial sphere in its roundness. But how can the perfection of the celestial sphere be compared to that of a ball? This is what I mean by perfect. Thank you.